0: Welcome to Real Crime NYC, where you'll hear real New York City crime stories told by real New York City cops. We'll also discuss some hot topics from the news of the day that have a law enforcement angle. I'm Pat. Join Chris, Bill, and I for this episode of Real Crime NYC, where we'll discuss the brutal murder of four college students in Moscow, Idaho. Okay, guys, what do you got?
1: Pat, this case happens on Sunday morning on November 13th. There's six people in a house in a small town, college town in Moscow, Idaho. It's a six-bedroom house, a three-floor home off the campus row. Four people are murdered, two survive. I'll just give you a quick timeline of their whereabouts. It's a Saturday night. They're all going out. Two of the victims, Ethan and Santa, they're dating. They go to a party at 10 p.m. You have Kaylee and Maddie. They're at a sports bar at 10 p.m. 1 a.m., the two surviving roommates get home. 1.40 a.m., Kaylee and Maddie, they're on video at a grub truck. They're there ordering food for about 10 minutes, and then 1.45, Ethan and Zanna get home at the house. Kaylee and Maddie arrive home at 1.56, which puts all six of them in this three-story house at 2 a.m. in the morning. It's 11.58 a.m., a 911 call saying there's an unconscious person at that house.
0: Chris, tell us about that crime scene. I mean, you are the expert, uh, you know, basics, right? There's definitely going to be many people interested in what it looks like inside,
2: what happened, a lot of questions. I think we, we all had a, an old chief that used to say, if you're not making an enemy at a crime scene, you're doing something wrong. And in 2008, I thought he was a nut. But after, uh, you know, 12, 14 years of going through it, I realized you are you have a job there. There's a victim, uh, there's a victim's family that depends on you acting right from from the minute you get there. You know, time is of essence. Every action you do could either help the case or hurt the case. You have your multiple scenes inside the house. You're going to have your second floor scene. You're going to have your uh, third floor scene. And then you have secondary and tertiary scenes. You're going to have the entrance point that the killer came in. You're going to have the exit point that the killer left. You're going to have the flight path. You're going to have the way he got to the location. So there's a lot going on here. You're gonna have four sides to the house. Every yard is a potential crime scene on his way out. Did he throw a weapon? Is the murder weapon out there somewhere? So uh, you have to think of this as a uh, a big operation, a very sensitive, very delicate operation that has to be handled systematically and methodically. When the uniform officers get there, majority of the times, they are most inexperienced investigators. They don't have the investigative experience so they're going to basically take statements
0: from the witnesses, lock it down, lock everything down. Everyone with a gold braid on their hat wants to get a bird's eye view of that scene. And what they're basically, it's basically a struggle for whoever's maintaining that crime scene to keep all the looky loos out. And that includes a lot of the police personnel. You really, and I think we've all learned from experience, you are on the side of making that crime scene way bigger than you think you need to. And in this case, I think, uh, At this point, they've established that the entry point was probably on the second floor, which means the most probable route in for the perpetrator, all perpetrators, was through that hill at the back of the house. So imagine you have the driveway, you have the four sides of the house, and you have that whole hill up to a road behind it. I would make the whole shoot and shebang the crime scene.
2: It's okay to expand and downsize the scenes as you see fit as the investigation unfolds but initially yeah i would make it as big as i can
0: because once evidence gets uh, contaminated or destroyed you're never getting it back you know that that route in and out of the house you're looking for footprints you're looking for any trace evidence the perp might have left a patent uh, you know blood print on something maybe a tree or a rock or something on the way out or, or a sneaker or boot print with weather and time all of that diminishes
2: Sure. Especially, you know, you're up in, uh, you're up in Idaho, there's snow falling. There's a good shot. The perp cut himself committing the stabbing. There's a good shot he's bleeding. So on his way out, does he drop his own blood in the snow? Snow's a good way to identify things like blood.
1: You get a canine to track that blood trail. You're telling me there's blood coming down the side of that house on the first floor. People that were killed come from the second and third floor. There's that much blood that it's coming down the outside of the house on the first floor. Get a canine there to track that blood trail. At least you'll get an idea of how that herp exited that building and what trail he took out. Maybe he goes to the front of the house and he got into a car. Maybe he goes in the back through the trail, like you're saying, Pat. But you got to get a canine there right away because of the inclement weather. If it starts snowing, starts raining, that trail is going to go cold.
0: When I see a crime scene like that, and it's it's worked before, and it's been a negative in the past, but my first uh, instinct, other than the actual crime scene, is, You're right. uh, The the blood acts as a lubricant and it's really hard to do that kind of damage to human body without actually cutting yourself with the knife happens most of the time. I would send someone right away to the local hospitals and inquire if there's anyone there, you know, looking to get treated for a uh, cuts to their hands or arms, you know, that you might just get lucky. And I'm sure they did that.
1: Four people were brutally stabbed. I would bet That that perp has either a scratch on him from a fingernail or a cut from that knife. How does four people get brutally murdered in the middle of the night, stabbed multiple times? It's a violent crime. While he's stabbing them, somebody scratches him. He accidentally cuts himself with his own knife. Gotta check every medical facility there is. And when you're speaking to people, everybody should be considered a suspect. You're looking at their arms, you're looking at their neck, you're looking at their face. There's a good chance that he was cut while he was committing these murders.
0: Yeah, I think there's a high probability of it, but we all know in uh, in murder investigations, there's no such thing as a sure thing.
2: Yeah, it, you know, it, it, I think at this point, if two, three weeks into the investigation, they have no uh, prime suspects. They really don't have anything. We don't know that. They're telling the public they don't have any prime suspects. Um, They're telling the public they don't have any good leads. I kind of believe that getting so much bad press at this point, they should have made the the public feel a little more comfortable. They should have made the family feel a little more comfortable. And when you have the father of one of the victims on television almost every day now speaking that the police department is not really letting the family in, uh, to me, that's alarming. Uh, You should have a detective assigned to each family or or somebody, somebody assigned to each family, making them feel comfortable. You don't have to give them the real sensitive information that you think could damage the case, but you should be making them feel comfortable daily. There should be communication every day, open dialogue, that those families know that everything that can be done is being done and they know that their children's killers uh, will be caught one day and soon.
1: Pat, you worked in the public information division of the NYPD. How would you handle a case like this?
0: Yeah, so you know something we can't you know, overstress here is, is the families. I mean, this is literally the worst thing that can happen. Imagine the mother of these young adults. I want to call them children, but they're not. We're showing our age. But imagine the mothers of these, these dead kids. You have to assign someone to help them out, to guide them through this. Otherwise, they're just not going to be able to process what's going on. It's just you know something that has to be
1: managed. I can't imagine being a father and losing a 20-year-old son, 20-year-old daughter in a vicious manner like this. I can't imagine what's going through their minds right now, the emotions that are flowing through. And the police department has to assign somebody to them, to feed them the information, to assure them. They're doing everything they can to solve this to make sure that they're on the same page as the prosecutors. All the different law enforcement agencies are working together night Trust
0: and Trust and confidence in the investigation takes a lot of weight off the parents. Yeah, no, I, I agree.
2: Um, you know, as a father, three children, uh, nothing worse in the world. There are four victims here. They all have mothers and fathers. Somebody should be with them every day. And not only somebody, it should be the right person. It should be the person with empathy, with care. You know, sometimes you have to put your arms around them. Sometimes you have to cry with them. You know, Sometimes you have to speak to them late the night, weekends, and just make sure you're there for them because they become the victim also. So your care is to solve this case and your care is to make sure mom and dad, brother and sister, everybody knows that you're looking out for their best
0: interest. Handling the family and handling the press, I would keep as two separate issues and the family... The worst thing that can possibly happen to them has happened to them. So you can't really fault them for anything they do. But you can manage their expectations and you can assign someone to them so that they feel comfortable that they have the most up to date information. Now, handling the press is different. So, what I've seen in this case is, I guess I would say, a less than sophisticated public information operation. They had to walk back some information that they put or change some information that they had already put out. That leads the public, and in this case, maybe the family, to not have confidence in the investigation itself. And these days, with, uh, you know everybody subscribing to real crime and you know watching Law and Order, everyone has an opinion on how this investigation should go. But none of them really have the inside baseball of being part of the investigation and knowing. What it takes to solve a murder like this. So, you know, Moscow, Idaho PD has 36 employees, including the civilians. Their last murder, I think, was in 2015. The assigned detective was 19 years old in 2015, which means he probably has not seen a homicide case. This is his first. So, basics like Chris was saying lock down the crime scene. Now you know what you have. Call for reinforcements. In this case, that would be the state police because everything's going to end up with that state police lab anyway but as far as uh, you know the public information operation there has to be a coordinated and very strategic communications plan in place before a major event happens in your police department you know doing it on the fly is just asking for trouble and it almost looks like that might have happened here On the other hand, a small department like that doesn't have a lot of resources, but at the very minimum, they should have someone designated as their public point of contact, their press officer. In the immediacy, there are certain things just by experience you know you have to do. You have to get in front of the cameras and tell people what has occurred. You have to let them know what you're doing about it. We're here. We have resources here. We are in control of this situation you also have to alert them to any current present danger if there is any and then just let them know that there's going to be more information forthcoming as you could put it out and if you do that in the beginning you tamp down a lot of the problems and people have confidence and trust that you're running an investigation that's that's worthy of these murders there's multiple agencies involved you're going to have to agree on a cooperation almost uh, strategy here one lead person talking to the press on behalf of everybody. You have to agree which information is going to go out and which is going to be held back. That requires, you know, talking to the, the detectives, the investigators, and making sure that whatever you're going to say is okay with them. The one thing that's for sure, if you don't tell the story, someone or everyone else will tell that story, and that's going to be a problem for you. And like uh, our old boss used to say, you have to feed the beast.
1: I've seen some of the press briefings that the police chief has done. He's very empathetic. You could see that the Moscow Police Department is working their asses off to try to solve this case. They're working day and night to try to solve it. The investigative entity has to work hand in hand with the prosecutors so that when they're getting up there, they're giving the same message. And a lot of times we would get up at the press briefing with the DA to make sure, hey, this is what we're going to say. And we'd get up there together and say it together. And I think in this case, if they would do that, give the information out. We're all on the same page. We're working together to solve this. But, but I got to say, I think they're working really hard. I think they're working night and day, but I just don't think it's a small agency. I, probably the last murder in there has been five, six, seven years ago. To have a quadruple murder like this in a small college town with 25,000 people, it would overwhelm any agency.
0: So I can, I can remember in the NYPD, I remember a case that we had that was very similar to this one. Um, I'm not I'm not going to go into the case. We don't have the time right now, but we set up a task force and we had dozens and dozens of people, not including the forensic people working the case. And, you know, in Moscow, Idaho, PD, just, they just they don't have the resources for that. So they have to do it in a different way. But they call in the state police and they get their force multipliers in there and. You know, all the naysayers out there, you know, they should do this. They should do that. They're armchair detectives. If if you're not putting out what you need to put out in terms of public information, that's going to erode the public's confidence in this investigation, and probably for no good reason. Sometimes these are complex investigations. This very well might be a stranger murder. Most of the time... People are killed by someone close to them or someone they know as a, a vengeance angle. But there are times, like the case I was just referring to, where it was just a complete stranger psycho. And those are the hardest ones to solve. Well, Pat, I, I think they they met the standard for uh, enough personnel. I mean, if you,
2: if you look at the numbers that they have between the FBI, the police department and the uh, state police, I think they have about uh, 36 members of the Moscow police. 45 members of the FBI, about 40 members of the, uh, the Idaho State Police, um, and then whatever the uh, county prosecutor's office is supplying. So they, I got to give them credit for creating a, a substantial size task force. Uh, and then when you deal with the FBI, they do have resources behind the scenes in Washington and other offices that can handle the uh, the crime analysis stuff, the, uh, the, the phone work, the spreadsheets, uh, things that have the computer work. Um, so, I think they're there with the personnel. They have over 6,000 Crime Stopper tips. I think they're very important. You have to vet out every tip. You know, the odds are, especially if it's a stranger situation, the odds are somebody knows that that perpetrator did it. Maybe he sees his hands cut and he's holding it close to the cuff. And eventually, conscience takes over and says, I have to say something. And it may be in one of those Crime Stopper tips.
0: Yeah, the minute, the minute you set up that Crime Stop tip hotline, you know what's coming. I mean, we've all experienced it. You're going to be drinking from a fire hose. And let's face it, 99.9% of those tips are going to be useless. But you have to run down each tip. You have to prioritize them, and you have to run them down to their conclusion, or you might miss that one out of 3,000 tips that's going to lead you to your perpetrator.
1: It's a major tasking going through all those leads. You're coming up with hundreds of people coming in with information. But what you want to do is sign different teams of detectives to each lead. There was a phone call at three o'clock in the morning. It's at a frat house. It's outside. There's a disorderly group or there's a confrontation. You'll assign a team of detectives to go out there and investigate who was out there. What was the disturbance about? Who are these people? There's a, a food truck that uh, two of the victims were at. There's somebody in a hoodie. He looks suspicious. You would sign a different set of detectives to track down that lead. A different group of detectives to search down cameras on the routes that they may have been going to and from. Another group of detectives to look at anybody that had access to that house. Ex-boyfriends, current boyfriends, anybody. Another group of detectives to go after DNA. There's a lot of blood on that scene. You've got to have somebody collect DNA. Everybody should be considered a suspect, but you're going to need elimination DNA samples. Under NLs, there's going to be multiple DNA profiles. There's going to be partial match profiles. The more DNA profiles that you collect from people that had access to the the victims, people that had access to the house, the easier it is for the forensic scientist to now go in and say, hey, we have a partial match here. We have somebody's DNA to compare it against and we could eliminate that person. Until you collect all that DNA from the biggest pool that you can, the quicker you're going to find these partial matches and eliminate people.
0: Yeah, two things just jumped out at me, you know, in the investigative brain, you know, while I was thinking about this and why we've been discussing it. So if it's probable that a perpetrator, they've established, I think, that he entered through or she entered through the second floor which means the hill behind the house. And, you know, this is an off-campus house, so there probably isn't a lot of video. Had it been on campus, there'd probably be video everywhere. But that leads to, you know, up the hill to a road. That road might very well be the proverbial road to solving this crime, because it might be rural. I don't know. But somewhere on that road, there's a video, north, south, east, or west, and that perp might be on that video.
2: Well, Pat, or his look car. At- if you look at the layout of the neighborhood, it's actually a little more congested than I thought it would be. There are houses basically laid out different ways, very close to each other. And if you look at the
0: overview, the Google overview, it's a community. There's a lot of houses. there oh, and well, I would I would look for a bingo one video then on one of it, those houses, hopefully, possibly
2: video on those houses. I mean, it is a college town. It is those are rentals, so maybe the landlords
0: don't put video. But
2: as far I, as it, I don't think
0: I don't think those college kids want video on their
2: rental exactly house. <laughs> exactly.
0: But it it is a it is a pretty populated area.
1: We always do what's called a twenty four hour canvas, a seven day canvas. People that would normally be out there at three four o'clock in the morning, anybody that may have been coming home from work, you have that nine one one call from the frat house. Even if they're not suspects, even if it has nothing to do with the crime, maybe they were walking home, maybe they were walking in the area and they saw who the perp was. You have to explore every means that you possibly can to eliminate people, to include people as possible suspects.
0: The second thought, I I mentioned I had two thoughts. The second thought that I had was, like you said, you have different teams of investigators, detectives, whatever they call them in Idaho, um, assigned to different tasks. I would kind of early on put someone on uh, looking at college students that may have been in their year or interacted with them, been in their classes that are no longer at the college and find out why they're no longer at the college. You may have a disgruntled fellow student that knew of their house or knew one of them tangentially. Like I said, most people are murdered by someone they know. Uh, but every now and again, you get one where it's a total stranger. So if it's someone they know, I mean, you narrow it down. Family, friends, other students.
2: Normally, it not only is it just somebody they know, but when there's a, a victims of stabbing, it's usually indicative of a more intimate relationship. There's a, you know it's easy to shoot somebody, it's easy to pull a trigger, but when you actually have to use the human force to drive a, a knife into somebody's body, there, there's probably some anger in there. Uh, yeah. There's probably a prior relationship, but uh, one thing I would like to see a little more. Not, of-
0: not, not necessarily. I mean, we had the butcher of Brooklyn. There's always exceptions. You always have a and, a and that guy was brutal. Uh, you know, some of the homicides we suspected him for that he hadn't actually been convicted of involved upwards of 80, 90 stab wounds in a single person. And in this case, you have four people stabbed to death. Yeah, I believe they're stabbed to death anyway. So you can't rule out the psycho that shows up out of nowhere.
1: What is a mental psychological issue with the person or the person could have been high on some type of drug that made them as violent as these murders were.
2: Right. There's one thing I hopefully they did, and I'd like to see more of, um, which I didn't see on any of the research we did. I'd like to see more evidence searches on the exterior. Most of the time, the killer's going to get rid of that weapon. He's not going to bring that weapon with him. They did take the dumpsters outside. There was three dumpsters outside. They did remove them, and they're going through whatever's inside those dumpsters. But uh, along the flight pad, does he toss it? Does he, Does he get rid of it? You know, in New York, we would have many, many boots on the ground. Sometimes upward of a hundred police officers, investigators, and we would do line surges. We'd just go shoulder to shoulder, and we cover every inch of the ground that we could that we could see and look for front a yards,
0: weapon. garbage cans, catch baits, and right, right. points.
2: Everything, to, just like you said, there's a roll down the block access point to that road, even if it's through the woods. Um, We've done it before. I think it's something very important for uh, the Moscow
0: Police Department to be doing. There's also a good chance based on what I've heard about the wounds that were sustained, that that weapon is either bent or broken. A lot of times the knife blade will actually break off. If it doesn't break off, it bends, the handle comes off. If it's a wooden handle, part of the handle comes off. All of that is evidence that you have the possibility of recovering.
1: They're saying that it's a fixed blade Rambo style combat knife. That's not going to break. I'm interested to know, did they check the knives that were actually in the house? Is there a knife missing? Did they speak to people that are in the house? There was also another roommate that wasn't there. Was there a knife that was accessible in the house? Maybe somebody had brought a knife in that was theirs. But it would be interesting to see if that perp brought the knife into the house, his own Rambo style Knife into the house. There's a difference from a knife being in the house. Somebody knows these people. It's an opportunity there to grab a knife, passion. They know the person. They're upset. There's something going on. They grab a knife and they actually do the killings. That's compared to bringing a knife in the house.
0: Yeah, it's a totally different state of mind.
1: Right. An important fact to know in the investigation, because it will lead you to a different suspect.
0: If I had to guess, I'd say there's a high probability that that weapon was brought to the scene, just by the fact that it's still not at the scene, and just the brutal way these murders were done. But we've just entered the realm of the armchair detective like every other know-it-all out there, right? I mean, uh, we're doing now what we we hate that people did to us, and uh, I'm sure they'll figure it out. Sometimes it takes time, and it's unfortunate that Their public information at the beginning seemed a little less sophisticated than it could have been. I mean, even for a small department, there's training out there. They could attend, uh, you know, multi-agency trainings. They could go to IACP conferences that has public information uh, training. And they could get grants from the federal government. And hire professionals that uh, teach this stuff. I remember we had uh, someone named Judy Powell from uh, Code 8 Communications come in, and we already had a pretty robust and sophisticated public information uh, operation in place, but we still pay to learn how to do it even better. So two completely different operations, the public information end of it and the investigative end of it, but both of them depend on the other to be successful.
2: Yeah, how do you, how we would do it in New York, we would have daily briefings, right? And yet, I believe you guys ran many daily briefings, right? And we would have all the components either on a conference line in a room, and we would speak about the case, we'd get everybody up to date, and then it would be agreed upon by uh, all the principal members involved on what's going to be released and what's not going to be released. But you would, you know, you'd have the district attorney's office, you have the medical examiner's office, the investigators. If the feds were involved, they would be involved. You would have everybody plugged in and nobody would be operating in a silo. For the DA's office or the prosecutor's office in this case and the police department to be giving miscommunication to each other, it's almost like they're operating in their own silo. And you could eliminate that by having those daily briefings.
0: Well, that's strategic, coordinated plan. You can't come up with that plan once the event has happened. That has to be something you have in place ahead of time. And certainly a a district attorney's office should be capable of cooperating and working strategically with the law enforcement end of it so they're not at odds to each other and putting out different bits of information that may or may not have to be walked back. Like I said, it all has a bearing on the public's confidence and trust in that investigation.
1: Chris, you mentioned those briefings and they get everyone together, they get everyone on the same page. But you know what the most important part of those briefings were? To have an open mind, to get people's ideas at those briefings. You had a lot of experience, people from all over, they're from different entities within the department. You could have forensic people, you could have investigators, you could have patrol people, you could have people from every realm within the department together and you're going through the evidence. You're going through the suspects, you're going through the victims, you're going through the case, having an open mind and opening it up to them for different theories of how this could have happened, different theories and different leads to track down. And then you're going through what you've done already. It's important to have an open mind. You don't want to paint yourself into a corner with a theory and then now have to backtrack because now you're hesitant to backtrack. I don't want to backtrack. I'm still going to go with this. That's why it's important to have different detectives run down different leads. That supervisor, that's overseeing all these leads and what people are coming back with and say, hey, that lead just didn't pan out. And there's no harm in that. But if you're going to try to paint yourself in a corner, what I've noticed with this case is I think the police are really working hard again. I'll say it again. But I think they're just hesitant to paint themselves in the corner. They don't want to come out and,
2: hey, this is our theory. They already got... Uh, caught up with the uh the house as the target the victims of the target so they had to walk that back so i'm sure they're gonna be cautious not going forward. i think you're 100 right
0: so that's a bingo there uh bill i think the two biggest case killers in my experience have been ego and not having an open mind to other people's ideas i mean you could imagine some people have really big egos and if someone else came up with an idea that was a good idea, it became a bad idea because they didn't think of it. And that's a case killer. you have you have to really try to stay away from that. yeah, so we've we've covered a lot of a lot of ins and out, a lot of information at this point, and we're kind of running out of time, and we could always come back to this one. I don't think time wise it's going to be solved uh, in a day or two. So uh, any final thought, guys?
1: Pat, this is a really difficult case for any agency, not alone a small agency like the Moscow Police Department even with the help of the state police and the FBI, very, very difficult case to solve. I think they're putting a lot of resources into this investigation, which I commend them for, and they have to keep an open mind. Anybody is a possible suspect in this case, whether they knew the victims, whether it was a random and it was a stranger, whether it was somebody that just came upon them that night, and it was a a crime of opportunity, but there's no denying it was a very violent murders, of multiple people stabbed multiple times, and they have to have an open mind with anybody as a potential suspect at this point.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with Billing. I think they're on the right track. I think they have the right people plugged in, whether you're investigating a, a murder or any other crime. Some of the basic investigative steps all take part in every investigation. So uh, you have the right people, you have enough people. Uh, it's a matter of time. There's going to be a lot of work for them to go through. They will probably be there one day. We just hope it's uh, more sooner than later for those victims and those victims' families.
0: And it's very unfair to be criticized by people who are not involved in the investigation. But that's one of the realities of modern detective work. You have the Internet. You have social media. Everybody has an opinion on what you're doing. And they're almost proud about throwing in their uneducated opinion of this. So, uh, hey, Let's uh, shout out to the uh, the Moscow, Idaho Police Department. Great work. We know you're going to solve this. And uh, that's the end of our story for today. And, and that's that. We'll see you when we see you. Join us on the next episode of Real Crime NYC. I'm Pat. I'm Chris. And I'm Bill. We'll see you when we see you.